to episode 1331 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. I have breaking news. This isn't breaking news. This is big news. Big news from Friday. The Cubs did not meet with Bryce Harper <laughs> on Friday. So if you were wondering, did the Cubs meet with Bryce Harper on Friday? The answer is no. Uh, and he remains unsigned. To my knowledge, he remains unsigned. Maybe something has happened and it's being kept under wraps. But no, nothing, nothing at all. What's happened is nothing. Yeah. I'd like to be a fly on the wall in one of these big free agent meetings because I, I just I wonder how much it can actually dictate the decision. At this point, you know so much about Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. I mean, you know everything about them statistically. You know everything that's been reported about them. They've been public figures, sometimes controversially, sometimes not for several years now what could be changed i wonder by a brief meeting or even a longish meeting with one of these free agents and when you're talking about either in the player's case well hundreds of millions of dollars and just your personal life and future or in the team's case hundreds of millions of dollars as well how much would your mind be swayed by one meeting? I mean, what if the guy is, you know, just good in that meeting or he's having a nice day or something? I guess you want to know, do you get along well with this person? But how well can you even tell that from a meeting where he's going to be on his best behavior and everyone's going to be acting kind of, you know, phony and fake because they're trying to impress each other? Also, these are generally, not always, but generally, it's like front office and ownership people who are meeting with the player and those aren't even the people you're going to be interacting with. Like a Bryce Harper, and the owner or GM of his next team are hardly ever going to talk. So mm-hmm. I don't know what's happening. I don't know why it's happening. Something is something better is going to happen. Something more definitive is going to happen. Here's where I come down. Get rid of all agents. If you're an agent, <laughs> they don't need you unless you do better. If you're Bryce Harper, you would have to be like informed enough to just be like, this is what I want and somebody give it to me. And even if you get like, I don't know, 3% worse of an offer, that still saves you the 5 to 10% that your commission is to Scott Boris. Get rid. So what I should have said was get rid of Scott Boris. I'm glad that he does what he does. Great advocate, whatever. But he is a big reason why this is still happening. You can't tell, but I'm stabbing my foot with a pen because I'm so frustrated <laughs> that nothing is happening, even though it's supposed to be happening. Scott Boris is a problem. <laughs> And someone just needs to be able to cut through it. And he needs to stop holding out for every last dollar because Bryce Harper is going to let him do that because that's what he's been entrusted with. That is his job to try to get the best offer possible because, you know, players love that status stuff. Bryce Harper wants to get $325.1 million so that he can defeat (laughs) the Giancarlo Stanton contract because players love status and and all that stuff. They, They like I mean, think about if if you took a job and you found out that somebody who was similar or worse than you got more money a few years ago, then like it would only make sense that naturally you would want to exceed that number so that you feel mm-hmm. valued and appreciated. But at a certain point, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you have an agent, it slows everything down. Like Bryce Harper can field some phone calls and then make a decision. You didn't need it. all these meetings. It's just, there's nothing that Bryce Harper knows now that he didn't know mm, two months ago about any of these teams. Maybe he didn't expect the Padres to be involved, but are the Padres are the Padres really involved? <laughs> I don't know. I guess we'll find out. But yeah, if you're a player and the money is the biggest factor in your decision, which it usually is and probably usually should be. 
then ultimately, I mean, look, if you're signing like an eight-year deal, you don't remember the two months when you were in limbo wondering where you were going to play, probably. I mean, if a, if a player said, hey, it's my top priority is to get signed soon so that I can just have the certainty of knowing where I'm going to play this year, I don't know that you prepare much differently or do anything that differently. You're still working out. You're still getting ready for the season. And ultimately, it's the offseason and you're home anyway for most of the time. So I don't know. Maybe Bryce Harper's totally on board with it and said, hey, take me to the day spring training starts if you have to. I want the most money, which would be perfectly fine. It's not perfectly fine for people who have to blog about baseball and have nothing to blog about right now. But that's uh, not Bryce Harper's main concern. So I I don't know. The real only important thing is whether Scott Boris gets them more money. And in the past, he has. He has a history of doing that. You could argue about whether he has done that very recently and whether maybe perhaps his brinksmanship just isn't working as well anymore because teams have just kind of gotten wise to his approach and going over the head of the front office and talking to ownership. Maybe not such a winning strategy anymore. I don't know. But If he can get the more money, then he should take as much time as he wants. I guess. And it is flattering that teams seem to be coming to him. Now Vegas is a very easy place to get to. Uncomplicated. People are generally happy to get there, especially in the winter, so that they can go meet with Bryce Harper and he can make his decision. But I know several times in the recent past on this podcast, I've presented the argument that actually this kind of offseason is better because there's still stuff to happen and you can always just kind of wait with bated breath because anything could happen on any day. JT Realmuto could be traded while we are talking. But the counter argument is, no, actually, in the moment, this sucks. This is just a real bad, slow offseason. There is no solution. Now, you know, no one can expect, I think you brought up the other day, no one should expect baseball to be 12-month, year-round entertainment. Mm-hmm. But I think objectively, rationally, this is better because it's spread out and there's still stuff to happen. Everybody loves Christmas Eve almost more than they like Christmas, all that stuff. But... In the moment, I know that emotionally and psychologically, I am hating this. I'm hating every day that I wake up and virtually go to work and sit in my chair and think, well, what kind of BS do I have to manufacture today because nobody is doing anything? (laughs) Yeah. Well, fortunately, we have built-in BS manufactured on this podcast because we have the team preview series and it is starting today. So the downside of starting a team preview series at this point when there are all these major moves to be made is that we may end up previewing a team that subsequently makes a major move that changes its outlook for the season. So as best we can, we will ask the appropriate questions and we'll say, well, will this happen? And if this happens, how would that change this team season? But hey, we have to start now because the season starts when the season starts. And actually this year, I think, has the earliest opening day ever or the earliest one where all 30 teams are in action. So we got to get started so we can finish right before the season starts. And for those of you who maybe have not been with us in a previous team preview series, this is how we do it. At this point, we have changed the format over the years, but now we do two teams, an episode, Basically, the first and third episodes of the week will be devoted to team previews from now until just about opening day, and we'll still reserve the middle episode of most weeks for emails or guests or whatever we want to do, just a a little bit of a break, but... 
two teams a day and we will try to talk to people who cover those teams and preferably in person maybe have a a little more of a well a little different perspective than we do sitting behind our keyboards here and we're starting this year with the teams projected to be in the middle of the pack based on the steamer projections as they stand today at fangrass and then we're working outward so We're starting today with the Cincinnati Reds and the Oakland Athletics and two of the best beat writers in the business, C. Trent Rosecrans and Susan Slusser. And then we will work our way up and we'll end with, I don't know, the Red Sox and the Orioles or something, the best and the worst teams just before opening day. So last year we actually went from the extremes to the middle of the pack, but based on a a Facebook group poll, our listeners prefer this format. So we'll give it a shot. Do you think that they really prefer this format or do you think that they just (laughs) like variety? Well, that's a valid reason to do it too, I guess. But I think it maybe preserves some suspense of, oh, who's going to be the best teams? Who's going to be the worst teams? you can end that suspense at any moment by going and looking at the Fangraphs projections uh, on your own time. So there is no actual suspense, but hey, whatever. We'll we'll start with these teams that are just kind of in the middle, and then we'll we'll get to the best and the worst, and that should be fun. And starting today, because we talked to C. Trent right in the middle of JT Real Mudo rumors with the Reds, and so we had to to build that into our questions. Well, I guess before we get into the preview, I should just point out that the Raiders are expected to play in the San Francisco Giants Oracle Park in 2019. So for all the fun that maybe Giants fans have been able to make about the Oakland A's stadium being a part-time football field, well, guess what? You got your comeuppance, and it looks like it's going to go both ways. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, speaking of football, it's over, and that is kind of a a right of the baseball offseason almost at this point, as soon as the, the Super Bowl is played. People, at least baseball fans, start turning their attention to baseball. And so this is kind of like a milestone day for listeners of this podcast who look at the Super Bowl as an indication of baseball almost being back and the the team preview podcast also kind of being an indication that it's coming. I saw that uh, there was a bunch of discussion about baseball versus football because Julian Edelman, who was the Super Bowl MVP, was suspended for PEDs earlier this offseason, which would never happen in baseball that if you got suspended for PEDs, you would even be playing in the biggest game, let alone be winning awards and acclamation. I also saw that Rams tackle Andrew Whitworth summed up the loss by saying, at the end of the day, we're all going to die. Which uh, sounds very much like a a quote that we would dissect on this podcast if it were uttered by a a baseball player. We actually got an email from listener Buddy who uh, pointed out, because we were asking on one of our recent episodes, would playing for your life improve your quality of play or impair your quality of play, which is an interesting question because there's a lot of pressure there, a lot of motivation. He reported some research done by behavioral economist Dan Pink about what incentives do to human performance. And he says that, to summarize, when tasks are simple, high incentives improve performance, and when tasks are complex... High incentives detract from performance, which would suggest that baseball, playing baseball, pretty complex, I would say. So in that case, being motivated to save your life might actually impair your performance more than it would help it. I don't really have a prepared response to that. So uh, thank you for submitting the research, and I would like to contemplate it more instead of being asked about it on the fly. (laughs) Okay. All right. So we will take a quick break, and we will do Reds first and A's second. So we will be back with C. Trent to discuss the Cincinnati Reds. I could have been... One of these things 
So kicking this thing off, we are joined by a stalwart of the Effectively Wild season preview series, C. Trent Rosecrans, who is a senior MLB reporter, covers the Reds for The Athletic and The Athletic Cincinnati. Welcome back to the series, Trent. You know, I don't think I've actually ever done the season preview. Really? I, you must have. I did it with Sahadev once when okay. you guys had it split. Right. But I uh-huh. haven't done it uh, with you guys. Huh. Well, that uh, just shows how the Reds are coming up in the world. We've talked about the Reds a few times this offseason, every time we've acknowledged how we never talked about the Reds in previous years, but they have made us talk about them. And now here they are with a middle-of-the-pack projection leading off this series. Did you know heading into this winter that you were going to be as busy as you were and that the Reds were going to be as busy as they were? I knew they were going to be busy. Well, relative to how they have been the last couple seasons because the last couple seasons have been great from my uh perspective because <laughs> i haven't had to do anything <laughs> and so i knew i knew this off season would be different i mean they came in and said we need to get two or three starting pitchers and they were very open that that was what they were going to do so they went ahead and they actually did that which is kind of interesting they they did they said they were going to add this off season and they've added So we are talking to you at an interesting time because it's February now and we're coming up on spring training in about a week and a half. And in theory, rosters are supposed to be set. But the Reds have not only developed quite a bit by bringing in a lot of players, but they seem to be the front runner or at least maybe the front runner in current trade rumors for JT Realmoto, who is likely to be traded sometime in the coming days. The Marlins don't want to stretch that one out. Too, uh, too much further. So what is your current sense of, of the Reds possibly ending up with probably baseball's best regular catcher? I think it's a possibility. I mean, I, it's so difficult right now in the way these things go and how much do the Reds see themselves as the front runner and how much do the Marlins want other teams to think they're the front runner. And of course, everything we talk about right now could be moot and 15 minutes because that's how these things work but it is it is kind of an interesting thing where this is an upgrade and this team is looking to make those incremental upgrades to to be better and that's not something we've seen for a while and to be a player for a guy like Riamuto is quite interesting and it also says something about how they've built up uh, their farm system because now they actually have the prospects to do it and what's really interesting is I saw like Keith Law's prospect ratings today, they were at sixth, and they had been at sixth. And that was even with losing two top 10 guys in trades. And still they have that kind of depth to keep going forward and try to make themselves better with a guy like Real Muto. When you think of like Real Muto also hitting in this ballpark, he's already baseball's best all-around catcher. He could have even better numbers this year if yeah. he's here. Well, and everyone they've added, just about everyone prominent, whether it's Kemp or all of the pitcher upgrades that they've made, Sonny Gray, Alex Wood, Puig, of course, and Tanner Roark, these are all trade additions. Is there any particular reason why they went the trade route for almost everything they did this winter as opposed to dipping into free agency? Well, when you look at it, they had four guys came from the one trade with the Dodgers. I think that they felt that they were more rich in prospect capital than trying to make a free agent move that's going to cost for many years. 
because even though they've traded from some of the prospect capital, they haven't traded from the top. It's all been, you know, uh, Shedlong, I think, was as high as six or seven on some lists, and he was higher than either Jeter Downs or Josiah Gray. I think they just saw that, you know, is some of this redundancy in their in their prospects. You know, uh, Shedlong is a second baseman um, whom I am uh, very familiar with. I did a podcast mm-hmm. with him in the 2017 season. And so, sh- but Shed's a second baseman. Well, if A. Eugenio Suarez is signed long term, their next top, other top infield prospects, Senzel and Jonathan India, are both either third baseman or second baseman. So you have this redundancy. And also, that, that Dodgers deal was so weird because of all the money moving and. It, it got rid of the, the Homer Bailey contract, which this team was likely to do even if it had to eat the money in spring or coming out of spring. And to really come up kind of neutral payroll-wise and add four players while taking away two decent prospects but who are still a couple years away, this kind of keeps them... They're able to say we're getting better for this year, but we haven't really hurt ourselves long-term. So let's talk about the top of that farm system for a minute because there, at one point there were some interesting rumors that the other teams were trying to get Nick Senzel and the Reds didn't seem to want to trade Nick Senzel. I don't know why anyone would want to trade Nick Senzel, but right now, yeah, as you mentioned, he is a he is an infielder. But according to quotes from the front office just the other day, it, it seems as if Senzel might have the inside track to end up being this team's regular center fielder. If there's one thing this team is missing right now, it is a regular center fielder, given that Scott Schebler is not much of a center fielder. Yes. Puig, not much of a center fielder. So what is the internal optimism and what is the external optimism or pessimism regarding Senzel's ability to learn a new position and and play an important role on a team that doesn't seem to have a track for any other center fielder? This this team's really kind of, they see Senzel as a guy who has such kind of savvy and the athleticism. I, I think a lot of people don't realize what a good athlete Nick Senzel is just because he has been a third baseman and that's not something that you usually think of as a some sort of premium type athlete you don't think of the best athletes being at third base but he is a very good athlete he has a, he has above average speed and is is just kind of one of those guys that has played a lot of baseball and is 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 really smart when he plays and they think he has the aptitude um, to play in center if not long term at least through this year and get out there. Uh, he's a, you know, the, the thing is the bat's going to play. He is a guy who is, he was going to be in the big leagues last year if he hadn't gotten hurt. And so now they're just saying, Hey, here's a spot we can shoehorn you in. And Shensu Chu played center field for this team. Uh, the last time they made the playoffs and Shensu Chu was not <laughs> yeah. a great center fielder. And that was, I just remember talking to, um, you know, that was a, a calculation they made. Sam Grossman, who, who's kind of the head of the analytics department, Sam just said, we kind of looked at it and we said, he's going to gain us more runs on offense than he's going to cost us on defense. So we're going to do that. And since then, they haven't really had, uh, they've had Billy Hamilton there, who's a premium defender in center field. But this isn't a place where you need a premium defender in center field. It, it, it's, it's, I've been saying for years, if you could line up the parks where Billy Hamilton is the most effective, 
Great American Ballpark is number 30 on that list. And is that why the Reds finally decided to cut bait on Billy Hamilton, that they finally just figured the bat is not going to play, and maybe you can get away without the elite defense that made him a a fairly valuable player, even when he was running sub-300 on base percentages? Well, basically, it was going to be, this was his third year of arbitration. And in arbitration, he was going to make about $7 million. Well, then he went and signed, what, two years, $6 million for with the Royals? Now, if they could have gotten him for two years, $6 million, they would have done that. I mean, they, they made an offer that's not too far off that to him. So, But he was like, why should I do this if I can go and be a free agent and find my way? So I think it was basically just the arbitration system. He was going to cost too much because he was going to get that much around in arbitration. And they said, there are better uses for our money and our um, payroll. So it was more the arbitration system than Billy Hamilton. So let's keep playing at the top of the roster here. When you you look at the Reds, it's easy to talk. look at uh, your Suarez or Joey Votto. I'm sure we're going to talk about Suarez and Votto, but the, the player who intrigues me the most out of everyone, even including Nick Senzel, is Luis Castillo, who it seems to have the stuff to be the best starter on the team. He seems to have the stuff to be one of the best starters on any team. For the second season in a row, he had a, a really good second half. And in fact, last season, it was really just a, a bad April that seems to have spoiled Castillo's overall season numbers. But nevertheless, even in his sophomore campaign, after being a rookie, Castillo lost a bunch of his ground balls. It seems like his fastball didn't play quite as well. But this is still a guy who throws 96 to 98 miles per hour, has three, four different pitches and misses a lot of bats. What is it in your estimation that Luis Castillo is missing at present and and needs to do in order for him to ascend to become the ace that it seems like he ought to be? It might just be as simple as consistency. When he's consistent, he's he's as good as anybody. I mean, that stuff plays. The changeup is really, really good. And, you know, maybe settling on one of the breaking pitches and 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 figuring out that consistency with that third pitch but when he struggled sometimes the fastball location wasn't great but it's still so good and the fastball change combo is so good that third pitch if it's just consistent he's as good as anybody i mean he can be that top of the rotation type guy that they've been looking for since johnny cueto so it's strange, I think, for us to see Yasiel Puig wearing a, a different uniform. You just wrote about Puig and his acclamation to Cincinnati and Cincinnati's acclamation to him. How is that going so far? Granted, we haven't actually seen any games and spring training hasn't even started yet. But is there any sense of how he'll fit in and, and be happy himself there? Yeah, Yasiel Puig came into town last week on uh, what just happened to be the coldest day of the year. It's like five below. And it was really just kind of this goodwill tour that he kind of, he initiated. And that's something a little bit interesting that, that he came in and said, I want to come in. He was going to look for a house. I think he bought a house, he said on Instagram and was just around. He stepped into the office, met everybody in the Reds front office, basically everybody who's all the employees that are there during this time of year, made some calls to season ticket holders, like sales calls really just wanted to check out his new team. And and that's not something we've seen from anybody else. They've added a lot of guys. But Puig wanted to do that. He came to the um, the youth academy that the, the team has out here, and he talked to some kids there. It was, uh, it was pretty interesting. There's a billboard on I-75 
says, welcome Yasiel Puig with him in a picture of a Reds uniform. It's interesting that he's seeming to embrace this. And, and he said, yeah, I've been in LA for, you know, all of my career in the big leagues. But before that, I was from a small place, Cenafuegos in Cuba. And it was a small place. And I was just this big guy. And, and, and he was actually, he's actually from a town outside Cenafuegos. I was there two, three weeks ago kind of as happenstance i was going to cuba this off season and we were staying we we stopped in cenafuegos but it is very much a, a small city compared to maybe even havana and santiago de cuba were the other two places I, I went on um my tour of cuba so he's just kind of embracing this himself and says hey i'm puig and you know he's a guy that likes attention and likes to to be seen and this city's kind of starving for that. Do you think that the team is starving for that? I know you haven't been, spring training hasn't started yet, and everyone still has to kind of get used to what the surroundings are. But if there was, I mean, Yasiel Puig has been a good performer overall for most of his career. So it seems like if if there was an appetite for the Dodgers to ship Puig out of town, it's because it was just, it was too much to handle. So I know that you could, uh, you could say that the Reds had a positive experience. I think the Reds had a positive experience with Matt Harvey this past season, who I guess if we're just going to, lump all, I don't know, handfuls together in the same category, even though it's more complicated than that. But one can assume the Reds wouldn't have made the trade if they didn't think that they could handle everything that comes with Yasiel Puig. But have you talked to people on the record, off the record, about what they anticipate the season to be like? A little bit. And I think they're kind of excited because they see this is a team that hasn't been very good. And they can put up with some stuff, and they have in the past put up with things. Some of these leaders and the, the veteran guys, they've put up with some stuff as long as they can be better. And I've, I've talked with some of the veterans just kind of texting, and they're, they're kind of excited just because it's an energy. And there hasn't been a whole lot of energy around this team the last couple of years. The other part of this is Puig's only here for one year as far as we know so far. He's under control for one more year. So if it is a mess, it's not a long-term mess. And this is something I, I don't think anybody's looking to extend him right now. And who knows if he would now. We, we don't know how the free agency works out anymore uh, because it's everything is awful. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, we, we just don't know. But it is only a one-year thing. And I think people are excited that, hey, this guy can make us better. So in our most recent episode, we were talking about a, a hypothetical question. If you have to be bad at something, what's the best thing to be bad at just from a, an entertainment spectator perspective? And we were both thinking that, well, you, you do want to be good at pitching if it means that you can be good at everything else because – that way, at least you feel like you can get back into games, even if you're coughing up leads. But as Jeff pointed out on that episode, the Reds have basically been that in real life, just the team that is terrible at pitching and, you know, better at other things. So just from a, a fan spectator standpoint, obviously it makes the Reds a lot better that they now seem to have a, a solid to potentially good rotation. But was that a particularly demoralizing way to lose the way that they did over the last couple of years with just replacement level staffs or, or does it not matter how you get to your win or loss total? Oh no, those bad pitching takes longer. You know, those games just drag and drag and drag. And when you're down so much so early, nobody seems to be in it. And yeah, it was, it was really bad. It was particularly bad. I don't know that it ever got worse than the second half of 2015 after the All-Star or after the trade deadline 
when every start after the trade deadline was made by a rookie, that was probably the low point. Now, this year they might be, you look at their defense, and their defense is, is really taking a hit. Uh, because you used to have, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that you had Tucker Barnhart behind the plate, Zach Cozart at shortstop, Brandon Phillips at second base, Joey's Votto's won a gold glove. He's been up and down. Um, he's been really bad at times and really good at times. Um, you had uh, Billy Hamilton in center. You had Adam Duvall in left. You had a really good defense, and now you look around there, and I don't know if there's an above-average defender on the board uh, other than Tucker Barnhart, because at first, Votto can be. Sometimes he is, sometimes he isn't. It seems to have, have different things. Scooter Jeanette's a below-average second baseman. I would say, you know, at, at, at shortstop, Jose Peraza's been about average last year. I would say he's probably a tick below uh, Eugenio Suarez can be really good. Uh, he's had his issues with errors. And then in the outfield, maybe you have Puig and Wright. But other than that, you don't have anybody who's a, who's attempting or coming close to an average fielder. So I think we had, we had mentioned the name Sonny Gray before, but that was uh, the big move that the Reds made recently. And again, maybe at any moment they will make another big move. But they got Sonny Gray, who was coming off what was an up and down, let's say, disappointing season with the Yankees, a season where he couldn't pitch in New York, could pitch elsewhere. And not only is the trade to Cincinnati supposed to be a change of scenery for him, an important change of scenery, and of course he's already signed to a, a long-term contract extension, but what you can't get away from is that in every single article written about Sonny Gray going to the Reds, there is a mention of the fact that he is now being reunited with his old collegiate pitching coach, Derek Johnson, who has joined the Reds coming over from the Brewers. So again, this is all taking place before spring training, before you have a, a good chance to be in front of these people on a regular basis to have conversations with them. But how meaningful is the relationship between Sonny Gray and, and Derek Johnson? How important is it for Gray to be reunited with someone who he was with several years ago and has developed ever since? Yeah, you know, I, I think they were very close in college. And I've talked to uh, Kirk Casale about this, the backup catcher. Kirk Casale was also with Sonny Gray and Derek Johnson in Van at Vanderbilt at that time, as was actually Caleb Cotham, who is now the assistant pitching coach. And uh, former, he was actually in the Aroldis Chapman trade with the Yankees. So it does seem like one of those narratives that just kind of builds on itself and it's always mentioned. But around... The people I've talked to, they think it's really important, and it's not always the case that a pitching coach and a, a pitcher are so in sync, but, you know, Derek Johnson, the, I, I can remember where I was when the Reds got him. My phone started blowing up. It was it was Halloween, and it was just all these people saying, oh my gosh, the Reds are really going for it this year, and that was over a pitching coach, which is something a little bit different, and I think... I, you know, a lot of people inside the game that I've talked to are really excited about this this Reds coaching staff and what they've put together. And, and that's, you know, it's funny that they've kind of banked on guys with uh, previous relationships because we talked about Derek Johnson and um, Sonny Gray, but you also have Turner Ward, the new hitting coach, and Yasiel Puig. You know, he was the Puig whisperer in L.A. And so now you have those two reunited again as well. 
Yeah, and you mentioned Caleb Cotham. He was a, a driveline guy himself as a pitcher, and then he was working with an agency where he was helping guys use the numbers and the data and the technology to improve themselves. And that seems like an area where maybe the Reds have been a bit behind the early adopters when it comes to getting that information in the hands of players. And of course, we've been talking about all these transactions. We haven't even mentioned they have a new manager, David Bell. So what is supposed to be his strength and, and is there just a, a very large organizational shift toward trying to transfer that information down from the front office to the field? I, I think this is kind of the start. David Bell was kind of the catalyst for what this front office has tried to become over the last couple of years. It's been a weird transition because you had Walt Jockety there forever. And Walt Jockety was a favorite of ownership. And he was the GM. And then you had Dick Williams, who was, well, probably the favorite of another part of ownership, being his father and his uncle. Um, <laughs> they, uh, hopefully they like him better than they liked Walt, and, and not to <laughs> say anything about Walt that way. But, um, you know, this is Dick has been a guy who has always been receptive to the way the game's changing. And he and Walt, I don't think we're on the same page. But yet there was some buy-in from there. You know, they, Sam Crossman is a guy who was, it's kind of been interesting to watch some of these guys come up from the bottom and go all the way to the top. And Sam Grossman is a head of analytics is, I don't know Sam's exact title. Um, it changes every year as he grain, gains prominence. He now has this huge staff. And I think this is something that this front office, when it went from the Jockety regime to the Williams regime, there was some time where they needed to to really sell the importance of this to ownership and what it means. And David Bell is kind of a guy who was really bought into this after his time in St. Louis and and then also with um, San Francisco. And he's put together this this staff that's really really interested interesting. Um, you know, they have a big Reds Fest in December every year, and I saw. We, I got there early the second day on um, Saturday, and I saw Donnie Ecker, the assistant hit, hitting coach, and J.R. House, they were the third base coach. They were there, and they'd finally got to get with some of the analytics types, and, and, and they were they had one of the guys there in a corner on their laptops, and they all had their laptops up, and they were just, you know, they had their jerseys on for their little autograph sessions and all that, but they were just, like, talking to the analytics people about what they're doing and they were getting to work at that point because it was they were really excited to get in on that um you know donnie is a guy who has a biometrics background and so it's it's really really interesting to see the full-on buy-in i think it's something that they'd been trying to move to gradually and when they could turn over a staff almost completely it it is really it's been the coaching staff has been very very telling so you had, you had mentioned that Dick Williams is the the son of a minority owner, I believe, of the Reds. And just on Sunday, I was absentmindedly scrolling through some of my Twitter DM archives, just going way back for for no reason other than I had nothing to do. And I I did come across a message. Of, this is all anonymous, but this is back in in 2015 when when Dick Williams was promoted within the Reds, and I I got a, a direct message. I don't even remember what the context was of this conversation, but. The direct message said that uh, a lot of the players with the Reds kind of saw Dick Williams as a schmuck and that all the players saw that as just like a nepotism hire and that it, it rubbed them all uh, very much the wrong way. Now, that was more than three years ago to this point. 
And of course, the Reds' plans have changed. They're now making a push toward competition. But how do you rescue yourself from that kind of first impression? And, and how is Dick Williams perceived today based on your conversations you've had with, with players? You know, I, I think there's always kind of a weird, I don't know when there's like a good relationship or, or kind of what is the, the barrier for relationship between GMs and players because, you know, the GM's the guy who can, who's always t- talking about trades or whatnot, and they can trade you at any time and they're not going to come out and tell you when, hey, we're looking to trade you. Um, it's also your adversary when uh, it comes some different times in your career, whether it's arbitration or, or whatnot. However, I, you know, the one thing I, I can see that, but I think the uh, promotion of Nick Crawl to, um, uh, to general manager, to that title, is something that's been pretty interesting because he's a guy, if, if you want to talk about Dick Williams and his background of being, you know, let's just, it's, it's a privileged thing that you, you're into this family, but although Dick, you know, worked his way up through the front office, you know, uh, when you talk about Nick Crawl, it's kind of the opposite. There's a guy who's done everything. I remember, I mean, Nick was an intern with the Reds. He was a bat boy with the A's. Uh, he's in Moneyball uh, because uh, you see the uh, when Scott Hatterberg hits the home run, he was the bat boy that day. He was a clubhouse attendant. He was a, a groundskeeper in the minor leagues. This is a guy who's done everything, and he does a lot of this day-to-day stuff. And I think, at least for, for a lot of people, there's a lot of respect for Nick Crawl and the way that he has come up. And that's uh, maybe that, that helps a little bit there. So we've talked about Jesse Winker on this podcast before because he's kind of been Vado without the power. I guess Vado himself was sort of Vado without the power a little bit last year. But Winker had that Vado-esque strikeout-to-walk ratio. He is coming off shoulder surgery. How much is that expected to hold him back, if at all? You know, I've talked to Jesse about that, and I think there's a, a couple different questions. The way that Jesse sees it is... He sees it as not holding him back, but setting him free. Like he's dealt with this shoulder injury, he said on and off since since single A, and he felt that's kind of hampered some of his power development. Well, now we'll see how that works. You know, everybody that's always kind of the hope. I don't know that we know exactly how it's going to work until we see him on the field, uh, because you can talk to everybody you want, but when we see it on the field, that's the proof of the pudding. And and, and so he is hoping that it helps his power uh, because he, he's been dealing with that and he says it's, he thinks it's affected him for years. And uh, we know the strike zone judgment is fantastic. And it's something that, that probably won't be hampered by injury. So where would you rank? This is maybe too hard of a question on the spot, but where would you rank Eugenio Suarez among the, I don't know, 10 or 20 or 25 most underrated players in major league baseball right now? Underrated. I, th- I think, you know, I, Underrated is always a funny word because it can mean so many things. I mean, I always, yeah, I, I would say he's he's terribly underrated just because a lot of people don't know how good this guy is, and he's not a national name, and a lot of that is because the Reds have been horrible, and so why would you know? Um, I, I think people probably saw him in the All-Star game and were like, well, those people who watch the All-Star game, like, who's this guy? It's, it's just, uh, he's not well-known, but... He's a really good player. He's, I, you know, it's funny because you look at the metrics, and I know he gets in these kind of air slumps sometimes, but I think he's turned himself into a pretty decent third baseman. And uh, the bat is 
the bat plays, you know, and he's got really good gap to gap power. I think he's coming into it. And then the team locked him up last year, right before during spring training. And I remember talking to, uh, I think it was Dick Williams. We were, I was walking into the thing and we were just kind of chatting. And I said, Eugenio Suarez, I've always been big on Suarez. And I was like, I think he's more valuable today than he was yesterday because of that contract that they had locked him up to. And then he goes out and has the season he had last year. And I look pretty smart for saying that. We like two-way players on this podcast. And so we've talked a good amount about Mike Lorenzen. There was a report last month that he's been working out a lot as an outfielder this offseason and hoping that he does get to be more of a true two-way guy in 2019. Do you think there is any real opening for him to do that? You know, it's funny because he's probably the best defensive center fielder on the roster right now. <laughs> uh, him or, or Jose Siri, who's, who is on the 40-man roster. But no, like, I'm not kidding. That, that was never the question when he was coming out of Cal State Fullerton. The, the glove was there. The question was, would he hit on a consistent basis? Was the hit tool there? Um, everything else was there, and, and, and putting him on the mound seemed like the safer bet. And I, I think it was. But he's a guy who could fill in. He is, he is more than willing to hit to field. Uh, he was hoping to field all last year. And he did go into a game in the outfield but didn't get any chances. But he is, now that Billy Hamilton's gone, I, I would guess, I would love to see him and um, Peraza in a foot race because I don't know which one's faster. Uh, he's, he's certainly the best athlete. You said he's been working out a lot on offense, you can just, with Mike Lorenzen, you can always say he's been working out a lot. <laughs> the guy has zero body fat, like probably negative body fat. And so he, he is just a phenomenal athlete and is willing and wants to do all those other things. Now, I think it's fun to say that in the winter and you can talk about it, but with a new manager, he's not used to it. We'll see. It's, it's basically going to be up to David Bell and how, how willing he is to do with it because the player is more than willing to uh, to take at bats, to play in the field, and to to pitch as well. So the last thing I wanted to ask you is uh, do we, we've all seen that the Reds have filled out their rotation. The starting five is going to be Luis Castillo, Anthony DiSclafani, Sonny Gray, Alex Wood, and Tanner Roark. Every team is going to need more than five starters, but if there's one maybe downside to what the Reds have done to bring in veterans for the rotation is that it's it's kind of boxed out their, their intriguing youth. <laughs> the youth does still remain. And I was curious what now is going to be the situation for guys, including but not limited to Tyler Malley, Cody Reed, Robert Stevenson, Sal Romano, Matt Whistler, Lucas Sims, even, even Brandon Finnegan. What is the status of so many of these young, one-time starting pitching prospects that the Reds have had? Well, I mean, I think Tyler Malley, of course, is, is he's probably the 5A or 5B in this. Robert Stevenson's a real interesting one because he's out of options. So uh, that changes what he can be or where he can be. Uh, he kind of has to make the bullpen out of spring training or that's it for him with the Reds. And that's um, this is a guy who was their top prospect for, for several years in a row. Um, Sal Romano, Cody Reed, Lucas Sims, Kerry Maya, all those guys still have options. So that plays into this as well. Cody Reed had some success out of the bullpen. Maybe he can be a bullpen guy. I, I think Brandon Finnegan is now a bullpen guy. It's been, you know, everybody said that in 2014 and 2015. And then in 2016, he, he pitches for 
almost uh, like 180 innings. So, and he, and he did really well. And then that was a question. And since then, it's been um, just kind of a mess. So, there's some bullpen guys and there's some non-bullpen guys. I think Cody Reed still has a chance to be a decent starter. I I, I know Tyler Malley does. Um, I, I'm I'm pretty bullish on Tyler Malley. And I think one of the reasons that they they have so many one-year guys is that they're also bullish on Tyler Malley. Sal Romano, I think they still believe can do this. He also has options left, has one option year left. So the options are going to be a big part of this. So we always end by asking our guests for a win total prediction. <laughs> I guess in this case, maybe we can ask you for a with Real Mudo prediction and a without Real Mudo prediction. And just generally, whatever you say, obviously, it's a tough division in the NL Central. So is this enough for the Reds to contend? You know, it's really difficult. I, 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 I know you always do win totals and <laughs> I know I should have been ready for this last couple years I've been ready for this and now I just don't know I think maybe without real muto 81 crazy I, I, maybe 81 maybe okay smack dag 500 and then 80 what real muto is probably a four or five win player so 85 with real muto Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. I yeah. I'm not. I could be. I can. You give me plus minus ten on both of those, and I'm still not sure. <laughs> right. Well, if they do end up with one of those numbers, presumably that is not going to win the NL Central. That might be uh, enough for a well, potentially for a wild card, at least a dream about a wild card. So, is that kind of the goal? Just like be in contention in September and and that will be a big improvement from where they've been recently. I mean, they haven't been, if people are still paying attention when Bengals camp starts, I think that's a pretty big win. That's something this team hasn't had for since I guess 2014. So that's something that they need is just to have that, that relevancy because it's, it was, there were plenty of good seats available the last couple of years and especially last year. So I think this is a team that is just trying to remind people that they still exist. And if they can do that, that's some, there's some success there. <laughs> Sorry, that was my, my phone. <laughs> yes, that is my ringtone. <laughs> that's okay. That's a good segue, actually, because I was going to close with a Star Wars question. Okay. So I, I won't ask you to predict where uh, Episode Nine will, will rank in your Star Wars order, which you have in your Twitter bio, because who could possibly predict that? But you have Episode Eight as your fourth best Star Wars movie, the, the best outside of the original trilogy. Make the case for The Last Jedi as the best non-original trilogy movie. I think it has... I really liked the growth of the characters. I know people say there wasn't much. I enjoyed it being different than so many of the others. The Snoke scene, honestly, is as good as anything. I mean, that's the best yeah. lightsaber scene in, in the saga, if you ask me. I don't know. I, I just really enjoy it, and I, I've enjoyed it more each time I watch it. I watched it this weekend, and I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. I, that's not a great case, um, but I, I find it... I, the more I think about it, the more I like it, and the more I'm, uh, I'm a fan of it. And I know... I've gotten, I get a lot of grief for that, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. All right. So we will end there. You can follow Trent's coverage of the Reds all year long at The Athletic and The Athletic Cincinnati. You can find him on Twitter and yell at him about his Star Wars rankings at C Trent. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. All right. So we will take another quick break and we'll be right back with Susan Slusser to discuss the Oakland Athletics. Don't think you're the first. 
by the time Think you're one of a kind So we are joined now by another veteran of the season preview series returning again, much to our delight, Susan Slusser, who has been covering the A's for a couple decades now. She is the A's beat writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, and she's about one minute removed from tweeting breaking news about the A's possibly bringing back Jerry Blevins. Hey, Susan. Hello. How are you guys? We are doing all right. And we were just talking about the Reds, and there is a, a ton of turnover with the Reds this winter. And the A's maybe have done a little more, at least on the margins, than Jeff and I recalled at first blush. But there's been a lot of consistency in Oakland. And Billy Bean, David Forrest, Bob Melvin, they all signed extensions again this winter. Those guys just seem to be locked in forever. So what is it about A's leadership that everyone wants to stay, ownership wants them to stay? Why is there just no turnover ever when it comes to who is making decisions for the A's? Well, it's actually an interesting question because I, I don't know if you remember last last year by midseason, um, it was actually starting to look uh, like a potential question. Would those guys be back um, based on the A's longtime previous sort of extension practices? They were well overdue at that point, you know, and they weren't quite in contention. When I wrote a story, I think in May, saying, like, essentially, could this be the end of the Billy Beans era? And then, of course, the A's do what they do every now and then out of nowhere with zero rotation and a million injuries and few expectations. They wind up making the postseason and everybody gets extended. But there, there were people who were concerned that the A's were not going to have some of those people back, at least maybe two or the three of the the kind of big brain test with being forced in Melvin. So if there's been a big story with the A's this offseason, of course, they were the Cinderella team last season, and it took them all all the way to one extra game that they got to play. But the the big story this offseason is that the A's might have a new ballpark. So if you were to explain this to uh, the average baseball fan who maybe has heard something about a new ballpark, has more likely heard something about a massive fast-moving gondola system. What is the state of the A's and their new ballpark project as of this moment? Well, I'm skeptical because I think this is the seventh set of ballpark plans I've seen since I've been covering the A's. Uh, it would be wonderful <laughs> if it happened. As you, as you guys know, that they've actually, they're still considering the Coliseum site as well, but they're really focused on this waterfront site, which is called Howard Terminal. It's just north of a little sort of restaurant shopping area called Jack London Square, which is not quite downtown Oakland, but is on the waterfront. It's separated from downtown by a freeway. Well, that's where the gondola system comes in. There are live train tracks at the port that would also separate the stadium uh, really from transportation, parking, etc. So a gondola, the A's feel, and the, and the city also really likes too because it kind of connects this Jack London Square area more to downtown. It would bypass the freeway and the train tracks and drop uh, people off right in Jack London Square and right next to the stadium. That sounds like a terrific idea. And uh, from my understanding, gondolas are kind of like the hot new thing in a lot of urban centers. And uh, that I can see happening. I think it would be wonderful uh, really for the city of Oakland if it happens. But my concern is they said it could ferry 6,000 people per hour. 
Uh, what happens when you've got 36,000 people coming out of a, a baseball game? Now, all, not all of them will have probably, you know, there, there will be ferries and things like that that people can take to the game should this ballpark, you know, actually come to fruition. Uh, but but I do think that the, it's going to be uh, a little iffy if people are waiting up to an hour or more for gondola to cross some train tracks. So not like like everything else with these projects, it seems to be more questions sometimes than answers. And the main thing is, there's no source of information yet about price tag for especially the stadium or how the A's would acquire the land. Would it, It's all going to be privately funded. They have said that from the start. But would they buy this land and how much? There's a lot of toxic cleanup. It's a port site. A lot of, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure, uh, egress, et cetera, problems uh, and, and numerous obstacles in that area that are going to be very costly. Uh, or would they lease it? The Port of Oakland has not made it sound like they're necessarily amenable to that. So the Coliseum site does not have all of those obstacles. They considered it to think of that as like a plan B. So I still got to think the more practical possibility is building something at the Coliseum, especially now that it looks like the Raiders are leaving a year earlier and the A's could have the Coliseum to, to themselves this year. If, if they want to knock down that Mount Davis sooner than later, I am available for swinging a sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned how the A's just managed to do as well as they did without a starting rotation or without a, a traditional starting rotation, at least. And on the surface, it doesn't seem as if they've bolstered that unit a whole lot this winter. They did re-sign Mike Fires. They did bring in Marco Estrada, but there's still a, a lot of uncertainty there. They added Soria to the bullpen, and then maybe it's a separate question. We can just ask you about all of the guys who are returning from injury or in some state of rehab who could maybe help in one area or the other. But to what extent do they think that that was repeatable, that they can just kind of opener their way to the playoffs again? Well, they are still looking for starting pitching. Like everyone else, you know, there's so many guys still out there. And I think they'd even consider, you know, picking somebody off during the spring, not necessarily even a free agent, maybe a trade, uh, maybe somebody on waivers. They're, they're going to keep looking for starters, but you're right. They they have more question marks right now in the rotation than they did going into last spring or, or coming out of last spring. You know, their attrition was a, a little bit, uh, it, it was thorough, but it was over the course of essentially the whole season. Uh, they do have some guys coming back, none of them immediately, except for Paul Blackburn uh, and Andrew Triggs. Andrew Triggs is coming back from thoracic outlet syndrome. So the A is really looking at him more as a reliever, which could actually mean a, an opener. <laughs> so he could still be starting games. <laughs> and and Paul Blackburn is probably like a number four or five. He's got minimal big league experience, although he certainly did look good two years ago when he when he first came up. And besides that, you're right. It's it's Fires and Estrada. I think Jesus Lazardo, the A's top prospect, he's 21, an extremely bright talent. I think he's got a real shot to be in the rotation from essentially day one. The A's, the A's, it's tough to say things like that with the A's because they open the season in Japan, so they only need two starters to open the season and then can use those guys immediately again twice. Uh, but I do think he will be uh, probably in the A's plans much sooner than later. And from there, it's it's sort of pick them, you know, between guys like Blackburn and Chris Bassett and Aaron Brooks and will they use an opener? They've suggested that they will. That could be Liam Hendricks again. That could be maybe somebody like Treggs. Daniel Mengden, is he a starter? Is he the follower? We don't really know what we're calling that position yet, but he actually looked very good in September once he kind of figured out that role, uh, but certainly has starter experience. So big question marks. We're going to have plenty to write about this spring, so I guess that's that's the one good thing. 
So it was it was a year ago in spring training that I was really, really excited to see what would happen with A.J. Puck, who seemed to be sort of last year's Jesus Luzardo. Now, the good news for the A's is they get to have them both. But A.J. Puck, of course, could not pitch last season, needing Tommy John surgery. And I was curious at this point, uh, Luzardo was very exciting, and we will see a lot of him hopefully this season. But where is A.J. Puck in the rehab process? And I guess while we're at it, also, what is the situation with James Caprillion? Because he is also still in the system. Uh, big prize brought back in the Sonny Gray trade with the Yankees, and he has barely pitched. So what is going on with those two former top prospects? Well, Puck uh, is a little bit behind Jarrell Cotton. They had uh, uh, Tommy John surgery the same week last year in March. I think that they're hopeful that maybe they could get Cotton back maybe May, late May, early June. I think Puck is probably more like realistically mid-season, maybe a little bit later. They're not going to rush him. If anything, they would probably try to give him an extra month or two, which I think is prudent. Uh, he is uh, an uh, you know a potential superstar in the making, left-handed, enormous, and uh, they don't they don't want to mess with his you know for the sake of a couple of months. I don't think they want to mess with his his uh, rehab. So uh, I do think that they are hopeful maybe June or July for Puck, but they won't push it. Uh, Daniel Gossett also had Tommy John surgery last year. The A's wound up with four starters with Tommy John surgery. Of course, Kendall Graveman's no longer with the organization, but he was he was one of them, uh, and he he will probably miss the whole season. The bright news is Sean Manaya, um, who had shoulder surgery, uh, they thought he would be out all of this year. There are indications that he might be back at some point and maybe more like midseason than later in the season. And James Caprillion, DAs say he's 100% for spring, for spring training. Now, there's some red flags with James Caprillion. He was having shoulder issues even before he had his Tommy John. He's had a slow Tommy John recovery, had some setbacks. Uh, wound up not pitching very much last year, just to kind of shut up a little bit and instructs. Uh, but the A's are hopeful. They certainly got their fingers crossed. He is going in healthy. He, he feels uh, completely confident that he's ready to go. The A's would love to see that. But I think there are concerns more about the shoulder than anything else with Caprillion. So the highest profile move that the A's made this winter was bringing in Drixen Profar. Was that an indication of a lack of confidence in Franklin Barreto, who had an excellent offseason in the Venezuelan Winter League? Or was it just a preference for him to play all over the place, as we've seen so many teams try to convert players into multi-position guys? Is he expected to be capable of that? Is there room for both of them? And I guess, what did the A's like about Profar in particular? particular? Well, you know, I think that they were had such a established veteran, uh, such a professional in that spot last year in Jed Lowry. He really brought the team together, gave them such an added dimension with the, the switch hitting. Uh, Profar is eight years younger and has, you know, didn't actually have that dissimilar season to Lowry. So I think they kind of more wanted to maybe match what they would be losing in Lowry rather, rather than this being any sort of indictment of Franklin Barreto, who's very young. You know, he's 21. Uh, he has had uh, a little bit of time in the big leagues. He's come up and down. He's been a little bit of a yo-yo guy. He's he's shown flashes. He's promising. I don't think the A's feel like he's necessarily 100% set at second base. I think they feel like they could they could make use of him as a utility guy, and he might have a lot of value that way. But you know, he's there's still some unknowns. I don't know if they they think he's necessarily a slam dunk. They'd like to see more, and I think they'd really like to experiment with him playing more in the outfield. Uh, this spring and see how that goes. He has played the outfield uh, in the past. So uh, it gives them more options and pro far younger, cheaper, all that kind of thing. Uh, when you're trying to replace somebody like Jed Lowry, pr- pretty impressive that they were able to do it that way with a 
with a significant savings. One of the uh, one of the quiet conditions in the in the past CBA was that the A's were going to be uh, gradually phased out of receiving significant revenue sharing, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is the last season in which they will receive any revenue sharing relative to what they they used to get. What was it? A hundred percent, seventy five percent, fifty, twenty five, and then zero, something along those lines. So the A's right now have a projected opening day payroll of about $83 million, which is up from last season somewhat significantly. And maybe there's a little bit of room for them to add. They could probably use a catcher. They could probably use, as you have reported, another reliever. But what? how, how do the A's feel about the fact that they are going to be cut out from, from the revenue sharing moving forward? I know it presumably places greater urgency on getting the new ballpark squared away, but how is the team prepared to deal with their new reality? Well, good question. I mean, that's one of the reasons they are so focused on a, on a ballpark and other streams of revenue. They, they have been really thinking outside the box when it comes to things like traditional um, season tickets versus other plans. They're kind of going to like a more of a ballpark pass kind of thing. Uh, essentially, if you buy any sort of season ticket plan with the A's, you wind up with access to every game, even if it's just standing room only or if you want to upgrade to a seat or, you know, sit in a bar area without upgrading. There there are a lot of options. So they're trying things like that. But, you know, the A's are as good as it gets when it comes to trying to compete on a low budget. They they always seem to manage to or, you know, that they've been in sort of this um, boom bust cycle of three years of not competing, three years of competing. They certainly hope that they are in one of those competing cycles. The, the rotation is the one thing that, that, that kind of, you know, makes that a little difficult potentially this year. But they are very happy with their group of young players, their core young group, the Olsen, Chapman, Chad Pinder, this group of um, pitchers that they have coming in, even though, you know, obviously there's been some setbacks with Puck and his injury. But, you know, if you talk about Puck, Lizardo, guys like that in a rotation, um, that they, they start to think like they could be contending for a few years and still doing it pretty cheaply while, while adding, uh, you know, a smart free agent contract here and there. They're just not going to do the sort of things that a lot of teams do and that even they did, um, you know, a few years ago. They're, I don't think we're going to see any more of the sort of Billy Butler three-year, $30 million kind of things from the A's again for a while. But they do things cheaper and try to do them a little bit better, and they'll continue that. We've talked before about how incredible Steven Piscotty was down the stretch in the second half of the season, one of the very best hitters in baseball. Of course, we also talked about the off-the-field tragedy and sadness he was dealing with as his mother fought ALS. And it's really hard to know what is inside someone's head, even if you're covering the team on a daily basis. But was there anything you were able to glean about his mental state and how that may have played into just how great he was in the second half of the season and, and whether that could continue? Well, I think everybody can relate to what Stephen Piscotti and his whole family went through. Um, I think, you know, nobody would ever want to go through something like what they did with Gretchen Biscotti and dealing with ALS. And it's just, a, you know, it's constantly stressful. And clearly that took a toll on Piscotti the previous year with the Cardinals. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's just an awful thing to deal with coming back home and being there and staying at home. You know, he lived at home last year and being around his mother, she, she died in early May, but that really helped him, you know, and, and, um, you know, he felt he was able to help. Uh, and see her. She was coming to games, uh, even in still in April, and, and, which was wonderful. And, you know, obviously the tragedy of her loss is awful. But, uh, again, what many people have been through losing family members 
when it's a long drawn out and painful thing, sometimes at the end of that, you know, there is sometimes that stress kind of factor at least is a little bit gone as, as sad and, you know, the, the grief and, and all of that is certainly there. Um, but the worry, I think, was, um, you know, a little bit alleviated. And uh, he was able to perform. And he really felt as if his mom was with him. He talked about that a lot all year. Uh, he hit a home run his first game back after her services. He hit a big home run at Fenway Park. And afterwards, he said, I, I feel like she was with me. And, and that was kind of his, his take on the whole season. Uh, so it was like it was uplifting in some ways for him, uh, the rest of the way, knowing, you know, kind of that she was there and watching him and, and helping out. It was really lovely to see. Um, the family is just fantastic and what they went through is indescribable. Uh, so, uh, I, I think a lot of the Bay Area is really rooting for Stephen Piscotti. I think that probably helped a little bit too. His dad was at virtually every game, home and road, which was wonderful. I feel nothing short of ashamed for following up that meaningful question with something about a player's defense, but here we are. <laughs> and I know that supposed to be talking about Matt Chapman, Matt Chapman, Matt Chapman, but one of the things that fascinates me the most about the, the A's roster as it's constructed is that one, uh, one might remember that when the A's acquired Marcus Semien and they played him at shortstop, he committed an error roughly three times every single game. And last season, by dint of some work with Ron Washington and just by dint of experience and, and getting better, Marcus Semien turned himself into an actual reliably above average shortstop. Did you expect to ever be in a situation where you would watch Marcus Semien and have him turn into an above average defensive shortstop? Well, I do remember when he first showed up in the, the first two months he was with the A's at shortstop and he was just making error after error. It seemed like five or six a week. It was just, it was crazy. And then they brought in Ron Washington. He still set an A's record for errors that season, an Oakland A's record for errors. But, uh, you could tell how hard he was working and that he was improving and that just, he just kept getting better and better. Now, Matt Olson has a lot to do with that whole infield and how well they performed last year. The entire A's infield were, they were all gold glove finalists, including Jed Lowry, who, you know, gets knocked for his defense. And, and some of that was Matt Olson having, you know, a six foot five first baseman who has a great glove uh, really is, is always going to be a plus for everyone else. I'm not saying that's why, Simeon improved so much. It, it had something to do with it, but he talked a lot this offseason. He he actually asked for Ron Washington to be the person that uh, he put into a coaching core alliance honoree. It's a big thing that there's, there's done in the barrio with, with players sort of honoring coaches that mean a lot to them. He selected Ron Washington and he talked a lot about how much he'd meant to him. And just, he said when they first started working together, he didn't even know how to catch a ball correctly. Like he had to be taught to like, you know, close his glove correctly. Ron Washington was like, what are you doing? Like he don't even, he wasn't throwing correctly at all. His stride was way off. He basically had to break him completely down uh, in the middle of a season and go back to absolute basics and teach him how to do everything, all the fundamentals from the ground up. Uh, and and look what happened. He's a very good athlete, and he's an extremely hard worker. So he, he deserves most of the credit for all the hard work, and Ron Washington certainly had a lot to do with that, too. It's really um, one of the more unique things to watch happen at a major league level. You know, usually those are the sort of things that are happening in the amateur level or the, the minor league level. So to see it, somebody put in that kind of work at the big league level and make it work, it's fantastic. Speaking of defense and surprises, I think that Ramon Laureano kind of came out of nowhere for some people who hadn't been following the A's minor league system very closely, and the Astros had traded him away the previous year, and 
And not only does he have this incredible arm that he just announced himself with that highlight reel throw right away, but he also hit very well and probably made the Astros feel pretty bad about having surrendered him. So it's a pretty small sample. It was just 48 games and fewer than 200 plate appearances and 400 innings in center. But are the A's expecting just more of the same over a a longer period? Yeah, absolutely. The A's were so thrilled with what they got from Ramon Laureano and essentially the last month of the season. They've talked about the fact that he's he's now moving Dustin Fowler over to one of the corners. I, th- I think they would be um, very happy going into the season with Ramon Laureano as their center fielder all year. Not just because, I mean, he's a spectacular center fielder defensively. He's the, he's probably the best, A's best defensive center fielder since maybe Dave Henderson or, or maybe even Dwayne Murphy. So I think the A's are thrilled with that side. And if he gives them just adequate offense, I think that would be fine. But I think they feel like they can get more and that, and maybe he can contribute at the level uh, that he did. They don't want to put unrealistic expectations on him, uh, but they love what they got. And he is a very determined guy. Uh, He has good at bats. He's very calm. You know, this is a team that was in a playoff push and he comes up and he gets thrown into a, you know, a very important position and he performed extremely well. I think that's why the A's feel like, oh, well, maybe he can handle this uh, because he just didn't show any signs of nerves or, you know, never had a bad at bat. He just, he just really contributed in so many ways. He's got some speed too. Uh, this this might be a really nice find as a guy who, you know, essentially was a acquired very under the radar the previous uh, November in a minor league deal with a with the Astros who were, you know, were faced with losing him and make potentially the Rule 5 draft. So we should get this question out of the way. Matt Chapman last year was amazing when he was a rookie the season before. He was also amazing. Very similar kind of player. Outstanding defender. Outstanding everything. Matt Chapman going into his age 26 season right now, and you've already mentioned how Matt Olson is maybe sort of the leader of the, the infield, at least the infield defense, but Matt Chapman is a guy who makes the, the shiniest, most sensational plays. Going into 2019, what is it that Matt Chapman and the A's are looking for him to improve? He thinks he can improve a lot. And he, Matt Williams is the, the A's infield coach, and, and he believes that Matt Chapman can improve defensively, which is extraordinary to me. I mean, he's he's the best third baseman I've ever seen by a mile. Uh, he just, you know, you look at the numbers and they're eye-popping. You know, he won the, the platinum glove. So he's really, people understand what kind of special defensive player he is. So if he gets better there, I don't, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. You know, offensively, he's going into his second full season. You hope that a guy learns to make adjustments more quickly in his second year. Sometimes there's a little bit of a backslide because the league learned that them and, and they don't adjust quite as well. He seems to be a player who knows himself really well. He did have two surgeries in the off season. Uh, he did, he had sort of repeat hand injuries last year that apparently has have been taken uh that, that's been taken care of so that should help him um and, and at least he won't miss you know he missed a couple of weeks here and there with that the hand injury last year so the A's are hugely optimistic I think everyone feels like Matt Chapman's a potential all-star maybe even potential MVP level player so if he keeps taking even small steps forward he's he's on track or something like that if he just stays where he is he's still the A's best player so uh yeah they're, they're feeling 
nothing but very good about Matt Chapman. I know that last April, I, I think there was a discussion, at least briefly, about an extension for Chapman, and the A's approached him reportedly, and he wasn't interested at the time. And maybe that's because he knows how good he is and just doesn't feel like he, he needs to surrender any money. But had there been further talks with him or with Olsen? I've read that there have been some talks with Davis. Is there any prospect as we kind of enter extension season here that the A's will be locking up one or more of these guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I reported a couple of times that there, there's not much going on with Chapman or Olson. I think, you know, their, their representatives feel the way that the current, you know, labor agreement is structured, that signing extension through arbitration might not necessarily be the best tactic, particularly for, uh, you know, for, for a team that might want a little bit of a discount, you know, buying out those arbitration years. They certainly don't want to add years on past the arbitration years. I think they'd like to get them out on the free agent market very young. And I think the A's are going to have a, have a tough time trying to assign them to any type of extension. I think they would have to do it at pretty close to market rate because they're both really top-notch players. Chris Davis makes the most sense. He's plays a position um, and his strengths are are such the market has been a little unsettled, you know, for power DH kind of guys. We, we've seen guys go and signed. We've seen them not sign um, massive deals or at least not ones that, that are as big as expected. I don't think the A's feel like there's much urgency. They certainly would be giving Chris Davis a qualifying offer after the end of the season. I uh, can't imagine why he wouldn't take it. Chris Davis loves playing in Oakland. That's really the main reason I think they might be able to get an extension. He has made it clear to his representatives how much he loves playing in Oakland and playing for Bob Melvin, and the A's feel the same way about him. So, you know, I think if they have something even reasonable, this is one where they could get a discount simply because the team, the organization and the city means so much to Chris Davis and he means so much to them. So uh, that, that's kind of what you want. I think I think it could all work out. I don't think that there's any rush. I think the A's, you know, potentially will pick this up once the season starts and, they, you know, their roster is all completely finalized. Uh, and and I, I think something will probably happen. I don't know if it will be necessarily a long, long deal, but certainly something you know, in in the three to four year kind of range, I think would 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 probably do it. Obviously, would have to be at least three years because they already know they've got the qualifying offer for next year. The reason we're having you on so early in our season preview series is because at present, at Fangraphs, based on one projection system, the A's are projected to be extremely average, and we kind of start from the middle and then go toward the extremes. And if you look last season, the A's, of course, won 97 games, and they overachieved relative to what was expected to happen. And if you look over at the National League, the Brewers won 96 games. They were projected very similarly. And going into this season, again, according to the same projections, the A's look pretty average according to them and the Brewers look pretty average do you think maybe you haven't thought of this before you don't watch the Brewers very much I have to assume but do you think of the Brewers as sort of a an Oakland NL equivalent given that you look at them and you think well these teams are missing a whole lot in the way of, of quality starting pitchers but with with the defense and the bullpens they're just extremely easy to to underrate when you just look at them on paper they're really similar I mean I, you're right I don't see much of the Brewers but I really did <laughs> think that um last fall watching the them in September and, you know, certainly in the into the postseason and looking at what their strengths were and what their strategies were. I think they're, you know, on the payroll, I, I think that they're, uh, you know, obviously the Brewers is higher, but uh, I, I think that there are a lot of similarities. It's fun. You know, seeing teams like that kind of come out of nowhere to do something is an awful lot of fun. You always have to wonder when a team does not have a strong rotation. It's tough to win. Doing it two years in a row, it's going to be tough for both teams 
maybe one or the other can pull it off. But, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit of a traditionalist in that sense. I, I don't know. You know, the opener thing is interesting. I, especially with the roster limitations with a 25 man roster, I don't know how you make that necessarily work on a regular basis simply because you need more guys to be able to do it. So the A's are relying on that. If the Brewers plan to do some of that some more, uh, I don't know. But uh, it's really going to be interesting to watch. And those, those are the, those great stories, right? The teams that kind of come out of nowhere and, and have low expectations year after year and still manage to do something. I, the, the little bit of the underdog thing, the A's have always liked that. They perform their best when they're a little under the radar. I think they love that people are discounting them again. I think they thrive on it. Well, we are ending these segments again this year by inflicting win total predictions on our guests. So <laughs> I don't, having just explained how unpredictable <laughs> all of this is, and I don't know how you predict the A's and a bullpen-dependent team like this. Who knows? But <laughs> what's your, your gut call? Oh, boy, you guys are doing this to me too early. I don't know what the rotation <laughs> is yet, really. Yeah, that's uh, it. <laughs> I think. I think last year I told you 82 wins, and I thought they would be thrilled with that. So I was obviously way off. Um, but I'm going to say 88. I know that's a big drop off from last year. I, I think they're a team that can be in contention and probably stay in contention and might surprise some teams. But uh, unless they really shore down a little bit more in terms of the rotation, I just think they're going to struggle to to get back quite where they were. 97 would be tough, but contention, I could see it. Mm-hmm. And one more more personal question, I, I guess I'm curious because I hear from so many people who do the job that you do that it is grueling and that there's a lot of burnout. I think I would be burned out after about a month of traveling everywhere and posting lineups and being on Twitter 24-7 and all the things that beat writers have to do. You've been doing this for a long time and you still do it as well as anyone. And I wonder how you combat the beat writer burnout. Well, I love my job, so that helps. There's always plenty to write about. There's a, you know, there's a fascinating team um, with lots of colorful personalities. So that helps. Going into a season, it's easy to say, oh, I love traveling, and it's great. If you caught me probably in August um, in, like, Kansas City or someplace, and it's 98 degrees, I might not be quite as happy with the travel, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I do love it. And, I, you know, the thing I love is I, I love going around the country, and I've got lots of friends in every city. I get to see everybody, uh, you know, at least briefly here and there. And, you know, with a, I don't like interleague play. I would prefer to have the old traditional balanced schedule. I think that the, the current format is, is not actually, you know, it's the unbalanced schedule is inherently unfair. And, creates all sort of schedule nightmares, but uh, I do like it from a personal standpoint because, you know, this year we're going to Pittsburgh. I've got loads of friends in Pittsburgh. I love Pittsburgh. So it's things like that that, that get me through. And, um, you know, I've got a very supportive husband who's also a sports writer, so he gets it, Dan Brown. He's been a baseball writer himself. He covered the Giants for three years. So mm-hmm. that really helps out a lot too. Well, Ace fans are lucky that you like it as much as you do. So they can read you and we can all read you all season long in the San Francisco Chronicle. And they can find you on Twitter at your name, Susan Slusser. Susan, always a huge pleasure. Well, thanks, Ben. I should also add really quickly for anybody that is interested more in some of that stuff. um, I do have a book coming out in March with the A's broadcaster, Ken Korak. And we both talk a lot about our jobs and how we do them and how we got them. And 
kind of like the pitfalls, uh, you know, the good parts, the highs, the lows, and all that kind of thing. So there's a lot mm -hmm. in there about that. So if anybody What's has What's it called? Uh, I will um, link to it. It's the Estes Walls Could Talk series from Triumph. Um, so it's the A's entry, me and Ken Korak, talking a lot about ours. And we also interviewed lots of people in and around the A's about their jobs and kind of what goes into them and best practices and pet peeves and fun stuff like that. And Dave, David Forst was one of them. Bob Melvin was one of them. Mickey Morbido, Steve Vucinich. They would, the groundskeeper, who's probably thrilled now if the, if the Raiders really do leave. Um, so it's a lot, a lot of fun stuff in there. All right. Well, thanks very much, Susan. Great. Thanks, guys. All right. That will do it for today. Thanks to Trent and Susan. You know, this is actually the seventh time we've done this series. That's a scary thought. And I know they say that baseball is a regional game and people only care about their own team. But I'm not so sure that's true of our audience, which tends to be very dedicated. And hey, even if you do primarily appreciate baseball through the lens of one team, it always pays to know the competition, right? It's hard to have a full understanding of your own team unless you understand other teams too, and the league as a whole. And we always try to strike a balance between very specific questions previewing each team and questions that would be of interest to a general audience. And hey, maybe it'll help you in your fantasy league. And please bear with us throughout this preview podcast series. Scheduling can get complicated with two guests per episode. Beat writers tend to be busy, particularly once spring training starts, but we will keep them rolling. And you can keep supporting the podcast by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Following five listeners already have James Cubbon, John, Nick Barbie, Chris Wickey, and Ben Clemens. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fancrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can pre-order my book with Travis Sochik. It's called The MVP Machine, and it's coming out late this spring. Your pre-orders are much appreciated, so we will be back to talk to you a little bit later this week. The highest type of satellite sky.